Good morning. Our scripture text this morning is from Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may there make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called the name Elion Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up to him, went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope you had a good Halloween. Forgive me, I just wanted to mention Halloween one more time. Some of you will be relieved that the holiday is, is past now and we're on to the next one. Um, you know, the store, stores have already changed long ago. They've moved on to Thanksgiving and Black Friday and even Christmas. And this is a time of, I, this is a season really in which all kinds of things are changing and changing fast. You know, leaves are on their way out and snow is on its way in. Unfortunately, that wonderful uh, protracted Indian summer that we've all been enjoying the last couple of months is pretty much over and uh, colder temperatures are in the forecast. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but just changes all around. And when we speak about change, we have to be prepared for a little bit of paradox. Uh, for example, we have a saying that goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that is not exactly obvious what it means. There's apparent contradiction there. There's paradox. Similarly, we have scripture verses that, that tie the changing of the seasons to things that are unchanging. So after the flood in Genesis chapter 8, for example, the Lord declares his intention to never again flood the earth and destroy every living creature that, that he did at that time. And he says, he promises, he vows, he covenants this, while earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So, so underneath all of the, the changing of the seasons lies something that is totally unchanging, which is God's covenant of peace. And we sing something similar, don't we? In, in one of our favorite hymns we sing, Summer and Winter springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with, with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. 
In other words, what that song is saying is that the changing of the seasons testifies to the one who changes not and with whom there is no shadow of turning. It's a bit of a, a paradox. And as we come to Genesis chapter 35, we see the same pattern and therefore the same paradox. In this chapter, there's all kinds of things that are changing, as we'll see. But underneath all of that is something, someone rather, that is unchanging. There's someone who never changes. So we're going to actually take that as our outline as we work through the passage. That'll, that pattern will sort of be our guide. We want to look first at a bunch of changeable things changeable things and then secondly in the in the last little part we'll we'll switch to talk about some unchangeable things changeable things and then some unchangeable things and we're going to discover ourselves to be in the first category in case you couldn't guess we're 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 in the category of things that can change indeed things that must change but more importantly we will we're going to discover that El Shaddai the almighty god is squarely in the second category and thus he he can be both our firm foundation and the one who works that change that we so desperately need the one who works that in us. That's kind of where we're headed. You know, as the ancient philosophers would say, God is the unmoved mover. And that's exactly what Jacob and his sons need at this point in their pilgrimage. And that is precisely what we need at this point in our pilgrimage. We need to be moved and changed and the one to do that is one who is unmoved and unchanged. So let's look at our first category of things, changeable things. And there are in this passage a number of things that are changed. There are at least four changeable things that I think are worthy of our attention that we would do well to observe. And the first is courses. Courses are changeable. You've heard, you've heard of a course correction. You know, that's when you are headed in the wrong direction. You're headed on a trajectory that if you were to follow that path for any length of time, it's going to take you far away from your intended destination. Even if you're off only a degree at first, if you follow off on that wrong trajectory, you're going to end up on the wrong path and far away from your goal and so what you need there is a change of trajectory you need your course to be corrected and that's not just true when we're talking about the physical realm you know it's not just true in terms of geographical navigation no this is true of us especially in the spiritual realm as well uh, one of our own poets has said Yes, there are two paths you can go down, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. And when we left Jacob and his family last time, they were in desperate need of a course correction. This was true for them both spiritually and physically, geographically. Those two things um, tend to go hand in hand. You remember that they had settled in Shechem, which is actually about 20 miles short of where they needed to be in Bethel. And this settling among the Shechemites had gotten, off, gotten them way off course spiritually as well. As we saw last week in Genesis chapter 34, it, really it's a tr it was a tragic chapter in almost every conceivable way. Hard to read, hard to hear, hard to preach. It started with a compromise, and it ended in genocide. And you have like shirked responsibility, rape, unrepentance, revenge, all of that in between. It's, it's atrocious. It, it was a total disaster from start to finish. 
Now, the advice that says there's still time to change the road you're on is well-meaning, but it's not very realistic. Because it forgets that when we are on the wrong road, when we're off on a bad trajectory, we're often way too disoriented, way too defeated, too lost to be able to find our way back. We're kind of like kids on Halloween night. Uh, did I say that I was finished talking about Halloween? I didn't, I didn't mean to. Last Sunday evening, I had the pleasure and privilege of walking with my son Jonathan through the village of Wayland. In about, I don't know, about an hour into trick-or-treating, Johnny is pretty much done. Okay, it's dark. We've walked probably two miles by that point. He's crashed from the sugar rush of sampled Skittles. He's overwhelmed by all of the sights and sounds and interactions. He may have been dressed in a pterodactyl costume, but he was acting like a zombie. And these are streets that he knows. These are people, some of them that he knows. But for the last half hour or so, I basically had to put my hands on either side of his head and steer him in the direction of home. And so many times, that is exactly what the Lord has to do to us. This is what the Lord had to do with Jacob. Do you see this in verse 1? God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. That's not a new command. Okay? That's actually, those are old instructions. Furthermore, returning to Bethel is something that Jacob has vowed to God on his own initiative that he was going to do. But somewhere along the line, he got distracted. He became disobedient. He got totally disoriented. So the Lord has to graciously but firmly put his hands on Jacob's head and say, Bethel. And thank goodness that courses are correctable, that they're changeable. And thank goodness for a God who initiates and acts in order to change our course. I wonder if that's your testimony today. I wonder if we open things up, if we could hear you testify that, in the words of the psalmist, he brought you up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay, and set your feet upon a rock that he translated you out of the kingdom of darkness and he translated you into the kingdom of his glorious beloved son in a kingdom of light. Or maybe today, it's possible that you're still in that bog, that you are off course because of your sin and your disobedience. And maybe you can't see far enough or you're too weak to even know how to get back to get back on the path that's going to lead you home. Well then, I suggest that you cry out to the Lord. Just, just cry out for help. Those are some of the best prayers in Scripture when, when the supplicant just only says, Help, Lord, save me. And the promise is that He will come and save you. He will help you. He will rescue you. He will deliver you. He will correct your course. And that leads us to a second changeable thing that we see in this passage. Clothes. Clothes. And these first two changeable things are related in that when the Lord calls you to himself, when he commands you to come and to worship him, that necessitates a cleansing. You know, when your mom calls you for dinner, you've been out playing with your friends. That call, even though she doesn't say that, and you'll notice that Lord doesn't explicitly command this part, but you know that when your mom calls you for dinner, that call comes with it an implicit command also that you would first go wash before you come to the table. How much more so 
when the Lord God calls sinners to come and worship Him, that we must first wash our hands. We've been out dabbling in the mud and in the filth of slime and sin. And so we read that Jacob commands his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. You understand, don't you, that, that serving the Lord is totally incompatible with serving idols. It's impossible. You just can't. You might think that you're juggling the two, but it's a spiritual law that says that it's impossible for you to do that. The, Jesus himself says, you, just for one example, you cannot serve both God and money. And even if you're ready to release your grip, your, your fierce white-knuckling grip on mammon, if that's what you're pursuing, if you're ready to do that in order to cling to the Lord, well, money is dirty. And so you need to wash your hands. And I, I want you to notice, just in case right away you're tuning out thinking that I'm speaking only to the pagans, to unbelievers, I want you to understand, folks, that it is possible for the people of God to engage in idolatry. And that's, that's, you know, we're talking about Jacob's family here. We're talking about the chosen people of God. And these are the same people that are told to purge themselves of their gods. A few chapters ago, we, we saw how Rachel's family god was kind of like the American Express. You know, it, it was going to be uh, impossible for her to leave home without it. And so she smuggles it out of her father's house and uh, she's clinging to it. And, and this command also shows us, doesn't it, just how the family settling at Shechem has damaged them spiritually. Again, we, they may have been under the delusion that they can still worship the Lord and, and be in the world like this, but... But look what's happened. In those seven or eight years that they were living there, they had amassed quite a collection of idols and trinkets and earrings and pendants that were used in those uh, pagan worship ceremonies. So they had to be purged of all of those things that they had just over time collected, accumulated, in the same way, James, who we've turned to time and time again in our study, James had to admonish the congregations that he was writing to, Christians, and by extension he's admonishing us when he, when he writes, because this letter comes to us, we who are far more stained by the world than we would like to admit. James commands us to cleanse our hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, the, the holiness and the purity and the jealousy of the Lord requires that anyone that would come to him must be done with evil and idolatry. This is, this is the strong message of verse 4. Look there with me. This is a, a strong message, but it may be obscured a bit by the translation hid. I don't know if you have that in your Bibles. Many of our versions have the word hid translating this. And understand that Jacob didn't take all of his family's idols and earrings and hide them under this tree at Shechem so that he could come by later and get them. No, he buried them. I think that's a better translation. He buried them because he was completely done with them. He buries them deep in the earth the same way that the Lord buries our iniquities in the bottom of the sea. Now, let's just think a little bit more about how this idea of forsaking idols and, and cleansing and changing clothes 
relates to us. Where did these clean clothes come from, we could ask? And here's the answer. The only way that sinners like us can approach a holy God is if we are dressed in someone else's clothes. If we are clothed in the righteous garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, one of the things that baptism symbolizes, and it symbolizes a lot of things, it's a really amazing picture, an acted out picture that the Lord commands to anyone who would believe on him and follow him. He commands that they be baptized. But one of the things that baptism symbolizes is a washing, a cleansing, so that when we come up out of the water, we are rising to the newness of life, but it is a clean life. It, we arise with a clean conscience, Scripture says. And from there we embark on a life of sanctification. And what is sanctification? It's, uh, it's growth in, in holiness. It's a process of ever-increasing conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to his, his righteousness. Uh, his righteousness, yes, has been imputed to our account. We have a record of righteousness. But in practice, sanctification is actually working that righteousness into us and out of us. And frequently in the New Testament, the imagery of this change of clothes is used to describe this process of sanctification. This, this is how it happens. And so we are commanded to put off the same way that we would put off you know, filthy clothes. We're commanded to put off the filthy clothes of, say, sexual immorality or impurity, passion, evil desire. Covetousness, which interestingly... Paul goes on to explain, is idolatry. So I don't know if when I'm talking about idolatry, you're picturing like little carved images and that sort of thing. Paul's saying your covetousness, when you're lusting over everything that your neighbor has and uh, in hot pursuit of it, wanting it, that is idolatry. At the same time, we are told to put on new clothes. It's not enough just to be take clothes off, you know, you're you're naked as they say. You got to put on new clothes. Clothes of compassionate hearts, for example, kindness and humility, meekness and patience, and above all, love. This this imagery I'm hoping that you'll see is is the imagery that the New Testament uses. Change of clothes to describe our sanctification. And now, speaking of burying things under oak trees, let's consider a third thing that this passage speaks of as changeable. Families. Families. You were expecting, I'm sure, something that started with C. Well, I'm keeping you on your toes. Families. I don't know if you realize it, but we are coming to the end of the Jacob cycle in the book of Genesis. Jacob is going to continue to live on for a little bit longer. Um, But very soon here, the spotlight is going to shift off of him and onto his children. And in particular, it's going to shine on Joseph. What we find then in chapter 35 is a number of notes about the passing of the current generation in order to make way for a new generation. So, for example, in the latter half of the passage, we'll read about Rachel's death. Uh, She dies giving birth to her last son, Benjamin. And this is going to be keeping with the pattern that the narrator has, has established for some time now. And that is the narrator is going to note the death of the patriarchs, for sure. And we will also be told about the death of their favorite wife. Not the death of everyone, but just the very important, significant people, the patriarchs, and typically their favorite wife. 
But in verse 8, we have a really curious note about the death of Rebekah's nurse. Now, Rebekah is Isaac's husband, Jacob's mother. But here, we have a note about the death of Deborah, who is Rebekah's nurse. And this is, this is a bit odd, because it breaks the pattern. It's odd because the narrator doesn't tell us about the death of Rebecca, Isaac's wife, which, which you would expect. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but we haven't heard anything about Rebecca ever since she masterminded that, that plan where Jacob would deceive his father, her husband, Isaac. That's the last we hear of her, and I, I think... That's the narrator's way of warning us that sin never pays. Okay? And that a person that will not honor others, it will themselves be dishonored. The honor instead goes to this very low-status woman named Deborah, who has been a faithful help to this family for two generations now. The Lord has strengthened her and enabled her to live a good long life, um, a life spent serving other people. And she's so loved that even as she dies full of, full of years, she's mourned by her family, this great big family. They mourn her passing. And she's buried under a prominent oak tree below Bethel, and that tree is then called Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Um, when, when he was younger, our son Job, he got kind of confused when we identified a certain tree as a weeping willow. And so for a long time afterwards, he, he called those crying trees. Um, he did even last up to last week. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just joking. This is when Job was uh, very young. So, well, this oak near Bethel is the original, the OG crying tree, because under it was buried a dearly loved woman, woman, and this whole family mourned her loss. Life is is so transitory, isn't it? And we're reminded of this regularly. Even this week, I heard of the passing of Joanne Visser, who is a dear saint that I've known since childhood, since I was three years old. She's a, a pillar in my home church in Bimbrook, Ontario. She spent her lifetime loving the Lord and really with all her heart. She wasn't a casual Christian. She she was a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and she loved the Lord, and she loved his people. She was devoted to the church and, and her very large Dutch family. And she, Joanne had this joy in the Lord that was contagious, always smiling, and not in like a, a, a light, fakey sort of a way. Someone who smiled because it was coming from a deep reserve of joy. Her joy was abiding even when she would go through lots of very difficult circumstances. This week I also heard of, an, of the inevitable homegoing. It hasn't happened yet, but it's very, very close. The homegoing of Lambert Baptist. And he pastored in Ontario for uh, decades. He was a Baptist pastor. You, you have to be a Baptist pastor if your last name is Baptist. But um, he retired, even though he would go on to do a lot of interim pastorate, he retired formally right around the time when I was starting seminary. And he took an interest in me, and, and he gave me boxes of books from his library including his set of Kelvin's commentaries and the works of John Owen, which I treasure. And every time I open one of these books in my study and I see the name Lambert Baptist inscribed on the first page, I'm reminded that time passes and all too quickly. 
a, a previous generation passes away and a new generation arises. Indeed, as Scripture says, all flesh is like grass. Its glory is like the, the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And here's, here's one other example, yet another example of how Scripture sets, Scripture just loves to set a statement about something changeable on top of a firm foundation of something that is unchangeable. So yes, we are sobered by the reality that our lives are fleeting and that our families change constantly. But at the same time, we are encouraged because there are eternal realities at play, like the Lord Himself and like His Word and like His promises. And this is actually what gives meaning to our present lives. The idea that because of the abiding Word of God, what we do in this life actually has an enduring quality. You know, when people die who have spent their lives in the flesh, pursuing wood and hay and stubble, in other words, things that will one day be burned up, things that won't last into eternity, those people are forgotten. People like Rebecca. But when saints like Deborah die, they leave a legacy. Now let's hurry on to mention one more category of changeable things that this passage highlights, and that's names. Names. You know that names change, right? We're, we're used to that. Even, even this week, um, Zuckerberg awkwardly announced that the company behind Facebook was changing names to Meta. And it reminded me of that time um, when a Lakers player, you know, basketball player named Ron Artest, legally changed his name to Meta World Peace. Do you remember this? I'm not sure why he did that. Uh, Maybe he took a little too seriously that song that says, let there be peace on the earth and let it begin with me. I don't know. But he's a weirdo. And so he changed his name to Meta World Peace. And I Googled him recently just to check up on him and discovered that over the years, thankfully he has matured a little bit. And in 2020, he legally changed his name to Meta Sandiford Artest. So he's, you know, he's growing up a little. He's, He's maturing. Now in Scripture... When things are named or renamed, they're never done as whimsically as that. Okay? It's always done for very good reasons, and it's typically done whenever there is a new experience that is particularly meaningful or course-setting, if you will. Renaming happens when one receives a new nature or a new character or a new identity. And we see it all over this passage, don't we? Just naming and renaming all kinds of things. And this passage actually can be a little bit confusing because some of the name changes are not new. Some of the name changes we've seen before, they, they hearken back to the first encounter with God at Bethel. Some, some names are simply reiterated here, like Jacob calling the place Bethel, the house of God. You see that in verse 15. Well, we knew that he did that back in chapter 28. So this is a sort of reiterating that. And then some of the renaming here is a sort of, I don't know how else to describe it, but a riffing on the name. So Jacob doesn't just call this place Bethel. He also calls it, in verse 7, El Bethel. El Bethel. So God 
of the house of God. It's, it's not a brand new name. It's kind of riffing on the new name that he's given it. It might sound a bit redundant, but actually it successfully highlights the God part rather than the place part. You understand? It's, it's highlighting the person rather than the place when he refers to it as Ale, Bethel. And as far as Jacob goes, he receives a new name. But again, this is not totally new. This was the name that was given to him after he had wrestled with the Lord at Peniel. You remember this? The name Israel. Now, I'm not exactly sure why the Lord renews that name here, but I wonder, this is just speculation, I wonder if it's a sort of reset after that disastrous episode in 34. You know, in that chapter, the patriarch certainly wasn't acting like Israel. He wasn't acting like someone who had striven with God and was striving with men and was prevailing. No, he was acting like old Jacob. And so maybe this recap of the renaming is a bit of a reminder to him that Israel is to act like one who is who has striven with God and who is prevailing. The point is that since people are changeable, since the Lord can work tremendous transformation in people, it's appropriate that they would be given new names that go along with this new identity. And let's just use this point, let's not leave the point completely, but use this point to kind of shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about changeable things, uh, things like courses and clothes and families and names. And we've already been noticing how all of these changeable things are founded on the firm foundation of unchangeable things, more specifically on the firm foundation of an unchangeable person. Let's, so let's look more closely at that in this second point. Let's look at some unchangeable things as we draw to a conclusion. And the first of these is something that we're already talking about. It's a name. But here we're talking about God's name. And when you're talking about God and his name, you're talking about something that is unchangeable. Because God's nature and his character and his identity never changes. How do you change, how do you get more perfect than perfect? The Lord reveals himself, you'll see in verse 13, uh, sorry, verse 11, as El Shaddai, God Almighty. And again, this is not new. We discovered that this is the name of God that is first in Genesis chapter 17. This is how the Lord revealed himself to Abram. Actually, in a minute, we need to talk a little bit more about Genesis 17. Okay, so hold on to that thought. But for now, I want you to just think about how knowing the name and the nature of God as El Shaddai, as Almighty God, how might that transform Jacob's life? How might it transform your life today? To know that the power of God does not change. You know, it doesn't ebb and flow and come in and out like the internet signal comes in and out at your house. Let me give you just one illustration of this point from the text and the difference that it might make. Do you remember when we left Jacob in the last chapter, 34? He was complaining to his sons about their recent ac actions in Shechem. And it was noteworthy because that is the only time in the whole chapter that Jacob spoke. And it shows that his main concern was not so much with Shechem's sin against his daughter or his own sin and negligence that led up to it, 
but it shows that Jacob's biggest concern was that other peoples and tribes would hear about what his family did and that they would be a stench to them, that they would come and then seek revenge on Jacob and his family. So Jacob, of course, now is worried that he's got this great big target on his back, and he's living in fear, as he always seems to be. First, we saw him a long time ago living in fear of his father-in-law, Laban. Then he was living in fear about his brother Esau, who seemed to be approaching with hostility with, 700, with 400 men. And now he's living in fear of the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But do you see that in, in those moments that he's fearing, he's forgetting. He's forgetting that he is in a covenant with El Shaddai. God Almighty. And, and here's what an almighty God can do, in case you're wondering. Look at verse 5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. It, I mean, it's, and it's men, mentioned just so matter-of-factly like it's no big deal. But think about that. What power and what grace to undeserving sons. God is so... He's not just powerful, but He's kind. And it turns out that there's absolutely nothing to fear when you're a servant of El Shaddai. What about you today? What, what exactly are you fearing and chances are that it has something to do with your changing circumstances. I don't know if it has to do with your growing family or your downward trending finances or your downward trending faith. But brothers and sisters, do not fear. I, I don't say that glibly. I say that confidently on the firm ground of something unchangeable, namely the name of God, El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. Do you, do you understand what this means? It means that all of his person, all of his power is for you, his people. What do you have to fear? Do you know what else is unchangeable? And do you know what else is for you? This is B. God's promises. God's promises. We, so we move beyond what we've been talking about, the, the promise of his presence and his protection, to consider some other things that he's promised Jacob. You can see this in verse 11 and following. God promises people. He says, Be fruitful and multiply. And what the Lord has in mind at this point is not just one or two or twelve babies. He has whole nations in mind and groupings of nations. And he doesn't just have quantities of people in mind. He has qualities of people in mind. So he says, kings shall come from you. Wonderful kings. Kings like David. Even a perfect king. A king like Jesus. God also promises lots and lots of land for these lots and lots of people. In verse 12, land that was originally promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and is now promised to Jacob. And, and that, that sentence really just about sums up everything that I'm trying to say. You know, when it mentions Abraham and Isaac, it's really saying a lot. It, it's telling us that two patriarchs have now passed off the scene one by death and the other by old age. So the family is changing, but the promises are not. In fact, God's promise has not changed one iota since it was first given way back when to Abraham. A minute ago, I told you to hold on to Genesis 17. Okay, And maybe you're holding on to it from 
the beginning of the service when Glenn read this as a scripture reading to start our worship service. Well, if you compare Genesis 35 to Genesis 17, which I encourage you to to do, by the way, if you compare the language, the themes, everything in those two chapters, if you especially compare the promise that God makes here to Jacob with the promise that he first made to Abraham, then what you're going to find is identical things. The point is that while the people and the faces may have changed, the story stays the same. This is God's story. This is what he has promised to accomplish in and through these people. And so this is good news for us who are heirs of this promise, isn't it? We need to be reminded today that that God is going to be faithful to do everything that he has said that he's going to do for us and in us and through us. Listen to how the author to the Hebrews encourages us along these lines. This is from Hebrews 6. He says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchanging character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a mouthful. That's a a lot to, to process, but just think about this. What greater proof that God is going to keep his promise than the fact that he has given us his very son. And he has established us in a new covenant with the blood of Christ and by the Holy Spirit of Christ. Listen, friends. I'll use the words of that that great hymn of the faith. His oath, his covenant, his blood support you in whatever whelming flood you might currently feel like you're drowning under. You know, in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, the most challenging changes, when all around your soul gives way, it seems, that's when He can be all your hope and stay. You have a steadfast anchor for your soul, a a foundation. There is no greater hope for changeable sinners than that there is an unchangeable God. And this leads us finally to one last thing that will never change. See God's glory. Because really, all that we've seen so far, because of all that He is, because of all that He has done, the Lord must be worshipped. The Lord will be worshipped. The Lord will be glorified. It's, it's happening right now, in fact, as myriad upon myriad of angels are bowing before Him and singing His worth. Saints who have gone before us are joining the everlasting choir. And His praise shall never, ever fail throughout eternity. The only question that remains is, are you going to join in on the worship? Jacob, for his part, answers with a yes. And so we see him at the end of the passage in verse 14, raising a monument to the greatness and to the grace of his God. And he's doing so in the place where God has graciously met with him and spoken to him now two times. So Jacob's fashioned this rock pillar so that it's going to hopefully last for a long time, maybe not for eternity, but for enough time that he and his family and future generations can look back and go back and 
be reminded of their great unchangeable God. Jacob then pours a drink offering on it. He, he pours oil on it, which are acts of, of worship and sacrifice. He's worshiping because that is the only proper response to such a great God, to give him all of your praise, all of your worship. Indeed, to glorify him with your whole life. Now, there, there may be some of you here today who have never bowed the knee and worshipped God. And after looking at this passage, I hope you understand, perhaps in a new way, just how fragile your life is. I hope you understand, maybe for the first time, just how futile your life is if you're spending it pursuing idols. I, I hope that you've come to understand yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God. The good news is that you are a changeable sinner. And, and by that, I don't, don't get the wrong idea. I'm, I don't mean to suggest that you have the will and the wherewithal to change yourself. I mean that the Lord is pleased to act miraculously to change a sinner like you. How do I know? Because he's acted miraculously to change a sinner like me. Cry out to him. Ask him, beg him, plead with him to change you. Pray that he would save you, even today. And if you want to know more about how to do that, we, we'll have some folks at this front pew in front of the organ right after the service that would love to talk with you and point you to Jesus, the only Savior for sinners. So come and cast yourself on his mercy today. Now, the rest of you here today, you're what we might call changing saints. Again, by the miraculous work of God, you are being transformed from one degree of glory into the next as you behold the beauty and the glory of Christ. And I'm suggesting to you that you're going to be sanctified to the degree that you're resting on the firm foundation of the unchanging promises of God that are for you. That's what you need to be dwelling on and resting on and claiming and acting out of. So, so my message to you today is trust Him completely because He is completely trustworthy. My message to all of us today is glorify Him and enjoy Him forever because He is eternally worthy. Amen? Amen.